welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice. Today's poem is one that came to me in a secondhand bookshop a couple of hours outside of London. One of the most ridiculously large secondhand bookshops I've ever seen. Luckily though, the poetry section was pretty subpar. It was a lot of kind of mouldering copies of things you've never heard of. But in amongst all that, I found this beautiful copy of a book called A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far by Adrian Rich. And I picked it up thinking, oh, Adrian Rich, I, I need to know more about her. I need to read more of her stuff because I basically don't know anything about Adrian Rich except that she's incredibly well-respected, famous poet who I should know. And I mention that only because... I always want to underscore the fact that people that understand or enjoy or appreciate poetry are always having to do this kind of playing catch up. We're always realizing that there's yet another person that we don't know enough about and that we need to to read. And this can cause a lot of anxiety, I think, and you can feel a bit like you're never going to get to the end of that, that list. And of course, you're not. And a friend of mine in Melbourne, the wonderful Bonnie Cassidy, who's an incredible poet, was talking to me about this one day and I was doing my usual, I'm not reading enough, I'm not doing enough kind of line. And I said, how do you choose what to read? And she just said, oh, interest. And I thought, oh yeah, interest. Yeah, that that's a good metric. Just interest. Why don't I just go with that? Um yeah, so anyway, something about this book called to me off the shelf. It's just a really beautiful looking book. It's kind of got that that sort of early 80s vibe about it. And the title, A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far, is so intriguing, so interesting. And as it turns out, that line actually comes into the poem that I want to talk about today. But before I get to the poem, let's kind of ground ourselves a little bit in where Adrienne Rich was when she was writing this stuff. She had such an interesting life. It's almost as if she had two completely separate lives or maybe three or more. She had a family, married a Harvard economics professor and had children with him. And then after he died, she had a completely separate life. She lived with a woman. She moved to Montague in Massachusetts, which if you Google it, it's kind of like your archetypical, it's the place where I imagine the American poets that that I love kind of sitting and writing in log cabins, living this incredibly idyllic lifestyle. And that's definitely in this poem as well. And yeah, didn't win her that many friends when she made this radical change in her life. I'll read you this little bit from uh, a piece in The New Yorker about Rich. It says, Rich's three children were born within a four-year span in the late 50s. In those days, she wrote, women and poetry were being re-domesticated. Even Randall Jarrells, the best poetry critic of the era, proclaimed her work to be sweet and wrote that Rich seemed to us to resemble a princess in a fairy tale. An unidentified poet friend visiting her in the 1980s for the first time in years expressed the abandonment felt by many male poets and critics. First string bonhommes who had admired her early work and had counted on her to add some depth to the literary bench. 
You disappeared, her friend said. You simply disappeared. Women could also be unkind. Elizabeth Hardwick, a formidable feminist in a different key, declared, I don't know what happened. She got swept too far. She deliberately made herself ugly and wrote these extreme and ridiculous poems. Jeez, okay. So that's not great if you're Adrian Rich sitting in your log cabin in Montague, Massachusetts, trying to write these poems. So that's kind of the background to the book, I suppose. She's she's had success and literary acclaim and she's been accepted and then she's kind of moved away from that world and and people are not that happy with her and I think it's also worth mentioning too that even though this was written only sort of 30 30 odd years ago it was a time when everything was just so different in terms of how women were seen in the literary world I think I was at this talk last night and Ruth Padell who is a fantastic UK poet, was talking about publishing in the 90s and just talking about the fact that she was one of maybe only two or three women sort of working and operating in that sphere at the time and how every time she was mentioned in the press it would always be woman poet Ruth Padell, which is kind of unthinkable now and maybe in years to come we'll stop seeing all those qualifiers in front of the word poets, um, yeah, maybe people will stop being defined as Korean-born poet or, uh, you know, activist poet or, or whatever it is that we that we need to define them against this idea of the rest of poetry, which is, which is all a certain way. So anyway, let's dive into the poem. It's long and it is difficult so I'm actually going to try and take it a little slowly and maybe maybe pause and chat a bit about it as I go hopefully that won't ruin it for you too much so it's called integrity and starts with a little dictionary definition of that word the quality or state of being complete unbroken condition entirety a wild patience has taken me this far as if I had to bring to shore a boat with a spasmodic outboard motor, old sweaters, nets, spray-mottled books tossed in the prow, some kind of sun burning my shoulder blades, splashing the oar locks, burning through. Your forearms can get scalded, licked with pain in a sun blotted like unspoken anger behind a casual mist. The length of daylight this far north, in this 49th year of my life, is critical. The light is critical of me, of this long-dreamed, involuntary landing on the arm of an inland sea. The glitter of the shoal depleting into shadow I recognise. The stand of pines, violet black really. Green in the old postcard, but really I have nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. So that's kind of the first third of the poem and I guess that's where you get the setting you get these hints of a person rowing a boat to shore and these mentions of damage and something being critical so your forearms can get scalded licked with pain but saying it in that way can get scalded it's 
seems like she's saying that can happen without you really noticing it. She's not very definitive here. She's saying some kind of sun burning my shoulder blades. And then she goes on to say the length of daylight this far north in this 49th year of my life is critical. The light is critical of me, of this long-dreamed involuntary landing on the arm of an inland sea. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty confounding to me. I don't really know why light would be critical, why there would be this some kind of sun burning her shoulder blades. So there's a calmness to the scene, but there's also some kind of damage happening there. Not so much danger as just, yeah, kind of a, a creeping damage, I suppose. So starting again from, I have nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. Nothing but myself, myself. After so long, this answer, as if I had always known, I steer the boat in, simply, the motor dying on the pebbles, cicadas taking up the hum dropped in the silence, anger and tenderness, myself. And now I can believe they breathe in me as angels, not polarities. Anger and tenderness, the spider's genius to spin and weave in the same action from her own body anywhere, even from a broken web. So this part of the poem to me is, is pretty clearly about union. She's recognising that there is anger in her as well as tenderness and that both of these things are legitimate. And I think it kind of widens out from there as well. And I'm probably just overlaying this. I don't really have much evidence to back it up. But I imagine she's also thinking about her work as an activist versus her work as a poet. Not to say that poetry can't be activist, but that kind of being out in the world, talking to people, doing things um, versus the kind of solitary space she's in in this poem, steering the boat in simply, the motor dying on the pebbles and then hearing the cicadas in the silence there. So, yeah, it's quiet. It's a quiet moment, and she just kind of has this realisation that actually she can be both angry and tender. She can have rage and softness at the same time. And the last part of the poem, and this is where it, it really starts to get challenging to understand... The cabin in the stand of pines is still for sale. I know this. Know the print of the last foot, the hand that slammed and locked that door, then stopped to read the rain-smashed clematis back on the trellis for no one's sake except its own. I know the chart nailed to the wallboards, the icy kettle squatting on the burner. The hands that hammered in those nails, emptied that kettle one last time, are these two hands. And they have caught the baby leaping from between trembling legs. And they have worked the vacuum aspirator and stroked the sweated temples and steered the boat here through this hot, misblotted sunlight, critical light, imperceptibly scolding the skin these hands will also salve. So there's not quite a resolution there. But there's a knowing, there's an understanding that she's working towards. 
the line that really jumps out for me um or the section is these two hands they have caught the baby leaping from between trembling legs and they have worked the vacuum aspirator and swoked, stroked the sweated temples. So I learned from watching the documentary that um, I mentioned last time talking to Sophie, the documentary called She's Beautiful When She's Angry, that in some cases when abortion was illegal in the US, people who were not doctors at all, not nurses, women who are basically just working as activists were taught how to perform abortions. And they did this really like in deep secret and, you know, ready to run out the back door at any stage. Um, I can't think of anything more terrifying than having to do that and having to go through that. But um, yeah, so here she's kind of she's holding both those things she's saying her hands have caught the baby leaping from between trembling legs and they've worked a vacuum aspirator so that's one of the tools that apparently you have to use to perform an abortion so yeah holding both holding both things at once but then at the at the very end she just confuses me again because she goes back to this misblotted sunlight critical light imperceptibly scolding the skin these hands will also salve. So what is this light that is that is causing this kind of slow imperceptible damage here? Is it is it the idea that she puts herself out into the world and and, and gets hurt and that she needs to salve herself and, and repair herself afterwards? Or is she really just talking about sunlight? I, I sort of doubt that, but um yeah, it's it's a fascinating one for me, and I like the fact that it's it's quite unresolved there, even though it has a very decisive title, integrity, as if she's going to tell you something very definite, and then she doesn't. But yeah, a lot of a lot of these poems here in this book are like this, kind of long and and lanky and rangy, and you feel like you want to tighten them up, but then you look for where would you cut something, and there just isn't anywhere. So yeah, it's. It's very, very interesting, but didn't get the most fantastic reception. And uh, after I finished it, I looked up the, the review in the New York Times and it says, um, A Wild Patience contains more directly personal poems about the poet trying to come to terms with increasing physical disability, about trying to find a way to talk to her mother-in-law, about trying to salvage something from the wreck of a love affair that went down in bitterness. With a few exceptions, these are not poems of experience tamed, solutions grasped. Rather, they reach towards the edge of some possibility for a larger, truer, more humanly satisfying reckoning with things. They're the kind of poems that keep you up late at night and then enter your dreams. So it's funny, when you first read one of these poems, it's it doesn't immediately grab you. Like I say, they're quite rangy and and a little bit hard to grasp but they do kind of get under your skin there's lines in here that that really do stick with you and I keep coming back to this idea of wild patience how can you have patience that's wild the more I think about it the more I think this is maybe something that anyone who is an activist 
anyone who's politically engaged and fighting for a cause needs is a wildness and a patience. I see this kind of thing, particularly this week, we've had a hilarious and terrifying week in terms of the US presidential election and just watching people like Lindy West or Jessica Valenti on Twitter just trying to make sense of what's going on and also pushing pushing back against all their many, many trolls that, that waste their time. There's this extreme patience in the work that they're doing. They're saying the same thing again and again and but there's also a wildness. They have to be wild. They have to be willing to go way out there on, on a limb and say things that that sound extreme so that they can bring us all along with them and kind of deepen our understanding of what's what's really happening. Lindy wrote this piece for the New York Times. Apparently she stayed up all night writing it and it's got such a fantastic build to it and it ends with, these couple of paragraphs speaking to Republican supporters of Trump. She says, if you have spent your career brutalizing and dehumanizing women legislative, legislatively rather than personally, you are no better. If you were happy to overlook months of violent racism, xenophobia, transphobia and Islamophobia from the Trump campaign, but now you're mad that he used a bad word and tried to sleep with another man's wife, you are no better. If you have derided and stigmatized identity politics in an effort to keep the marginalized from organizing, you are no better. If you snicker or say nothing while your fellow men behave like Donald Trump, you are no better. The truth is that all of you have failed women for generations and you deserve to lose our votes. Next month, we'll grab you where it hurts, by your ballots. Go Lindy, keep it up. A wild patience has taken us this far. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you like the podcast and you want more people to hear it, please hop onto iTunes and give me a little rating on there. That means it'll come up in the search results and people will find it and we can take over the world with poetry podcasting. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>